0: Greetings, errants, glitches, breakaways, thought criminals, and genuinely open-minded and outright curious inhabitants of whatever simulacrum we find ourselves navigating at the moment. You are about to set sail on another free first-hour episode of The Melt. If you find yourself wanting to dig deeper and have the desire to join the conversation during our monthly Melt meetups, you might want to consider becoming a monthly subscriber. For a measly five dead presidents per month, you can have access to full-length, early and exclusive episodes just click the patreon or locals link in the episode notes below to create the timeline that will set it all in motion it's suspiciously simple altogether painless and just might inspire feelings of bliss and or lingering euphoria so without further ado let the conversations begin It's been almost two and a half years since we've had author and former podcaster Jason Horsley on the melt. As a matter of fact, Hunter hadn't even become the co-host yet at that point. As of yet, he is the preeminent returning guest here, this marking his sixth appearance. He joins us today to talk about his latest book, The Kubrickon, The Cult of Kubrick, Attention Capture, and The Inception of AI. I start off the conversation by asking Jason what he's been up to in Spain these days with his land-made man project.
1: Well, goats, chickens, uh, and a vineyard is the latest. The vineyard is the latest addition. So, yeah, the land is remaking me in its image, and I'm trying to live up to the, you know, the biblical injunction to be fruitful and multiply. I can't have kids, but I can multiply grapes and goats. <laughs> and um have dominion over the earth which which is very politically incorrect nowadays but i do think there was once a positive uh meaning to that and um yeah so it's a symbiotic relationship Mm -hmm. i feel the potentially we i have with the with nature i'm reforming it in certain ways because i have to because that's my job and uh it's reforming me internally uh and um those are the main points actually as far as uh, you know life in spain it's not that different except for the climate and certain opportunities like vineyards from from life anywhere else because i don't i don't see anyone i'm happy to say just the goats my wife a couple of cats the Mm. chickens drive me nuts um Mm. and you know i have to go shopping and i have a chinese acupuncturist actually so i see him nice but um yeah i mean it's not we're not integrating into the into society but we came here for the very opposite reason right mm-hmm. to disintegrate from society while society disintegrates we would disintegrate also from it so um so that's not that's no surprise there uh, it's just just us us and the animals and the, and the and the plants Pretty much currently, an occasional uh, online endeavor, but I'm doing that less and less as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Sure. What, do you guys have a chunk of land?
1: We have seven acres, which cool. is too, too much because mm-hmm. uh, most of it's un, uh, undominated. And it's wild, um, but we did want to. We did have in mind the possibility of expansion. Uh, as things fall apart, as the Talking Heads song goes, if there are people who are looking for, or when there are people who are looking for places to go to, if we know any of them and they know us, we, we could actually have land for other people to to use, to live on. That's kind of been at the back of, on the back burner the whole time. But we only use currently, uh, including the goats, we only use less than an acre, I think.
0: And so I think at one point I thought that you were setting out to sort of develop a meditation or a retreat center, but you're more creating sort of a sanctuary for people to go to maybe when things get a little more rough.
1: Oh, well, they're mutually inclusive, absolutely, because a retreat, that would that would be a retreat that never ended whereas the retreats we have had in mind although we haven't done anything towards any organizing this would be could be to do with uh learning that like having a brief period of actually living on the land and to some extent off the land and like building your own gypsy cabin or your own tree house or whatever it would be things of that nature that would give people the opportunity to have a taste of the uh agrarian life i'm not even sure what the adjective is for it the wildlife <laughs> another talking head song uh, <laughs> uh, and see if they like it and that also could be consistent with a more long-term thing as in you can come and see if you like it and start to build your tree house and even finish your tree house and then either you stay or you go and if you go we get the tree house and if you stay well you obviously have to keep on working and and then you keep, or just become independent, and and pay rent or something. I don't know what. Anyway, we're a long way from that, mm-hmm. but it's it's easy enough to imagine, and I don't think it would be that hard logistically. Just a question of takers. I mean, I re- recently sent out a newsletter announcing about the vineyard because it has a beautiful little shack, a stone shack, except it's it's not a shack because it's fully working the solar panel and fridge and everything it's ready to live in uh on the almost on the water saying you know anyone who knows me can come and live here in winter for free uh because you know we got it just as an investment and uh probably won't be able to rent it in winter anyway so i already have extended a number of invitations to all and sundry so far nobody's taken me up on it which i'm not at all disappointed or surprised by uh, I feel I've done my due duty, I won't get, you know, prevented from going to the kingdom of heaven because I'm too much like a rich man, uh, <laughs> if I'm busy, you know, for the whole time I'm offering to share it. Where so in you know,
2: where in Spain is it?
1: It's, it's northern Spain, it's Galicia. Oh,
0: mm-hmm. Wonderful. So what is the greater context like? What is the government like there? I mean, there's a, I know there's sort of anarchic areas of Spain. Are you anywhere near those?
1: Anarchy? I don't know. I don't know if I'd want to be near anarchy unless it was uh, not disorder. an, idea, an so- idealist's uh, version. Uh-huh. Uh, well, Galicia, I mean, it's not as though, I don't follow local politics or larger politics. My wife follows the larger thing so she's she keeps tabs on i have a list that she made actually of reasons to be in galicia spain in general uh in terms of all of the advantages here and that does include at least currently a government that isn't so WeF world economic forum aligned or affiliated obviously it's they're still you know they have to play ball but they're generally not as on on program yeah as other major European governments, it uh, doesn't mean that wouldn't change. Um, uh, but yeah, I don't, I don't follow the minutiae of it. And As I said earlier, I don't. It's not really. I don't really have much experience of being in Spain, particularly. I don't have much dealings, even though I've been buying property and whatnot. I've got residency, so obviously I have the minimal amount of dealing, but. Um, yeah, I mean the, the Spanish are notoriously bureaucratic, as in you know, the paperwork and things like that can be a real headache. Uh, and the other aspect that Spain, that's observable, is that they, as you probably know, they had many decades under a dictator Franco, and so they've only had a few decades of non-dictatorship, um, and so they've only, they've still been they've been catching up. With the rest of Europe, and I don't mean that in a good way. So that there's a certain there are certain attitudes here, but one of them includes an awareness of what a draconian government is like, um, and so perhaps a healthy degree of skepticism and suspicion about government and government control. Although you wouldn't have guessed it in the last three years, people have quite compliant here. But that may also be an example. They just know that. You've got to keep your head down Mm -hmm. without necessarily believing.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. You just have to act like you believe. I don't know. I didn't do enough surveys to actually gauge. Um, Anyway, this is just some general points.
0: Yeah. I was just wondering if that had something to do with the decision to move there because maybe you were, you know, you would be in a greater political context where you would just kind of be left alone to do whatever the hell you wanted to do.
1: Uh, It wasn't factored into the decisions, we didn't look into into the deep background of Spain. Uh, Obviously, living as far away from populated areas was always part of the package. We're actually not as far away as I thought we might end up. And we even have a couple of neighbours here, or actually quite a few, but I mean, a couple that are close. And in the end, I did have to say, well, first of all, this is what's happened, so it's probably a good reason for it. But then also I began to see... The one observable good reason is, is that if you're in a community, a small community, when things do start falling apart, uh, you've got more, you do have some of the connections you need. Like we know somebody who raises rabbits, we don't know them personally. We know that there's a mill here for wheat for making flour. Uh, obviously, neighbours who grow their own produce, they give it away. We give ours away. There's already we're already part of a network that potentially could. Uh, be more self-sustainable by working together, which is the only way any of us are going to do it. I Absolutely, know, there's not going to be Jeremiah Johnson. I mean, somebody, somebody <laughs> could do that. But...
0: I haven't seen that movie in a long time. I know it's a good
2: good <laughs> reference.
0: Yeah, exactly. I remember seeing it at the theater, and and then there was a meme, a Jeremiah Johnson meme or something like that, where I don't remember what the text of the meme was, but it had to. Robert Redford was just sort of giving this thousand-yard <laughs> stare to the camera. And, of course, some word underneath that made it all seem funny. But
2: I really want to talk about the book. I'm so curious. You have such a brilliant mind. I'm interested in how you chose this subject. The Kahn book? Yes.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah, I get that question. Actually, that particular question, I do get it. Uh, I have mean, only done half a dozen interviews for this book. I think, but I think almost all of them, or perhaps all of them have asked that. Um, uh, I'm going to turn it, turn the tables on you. Uh, what, what can you be more specific? Like, do you mean, why did I choose to write about Kubrick or, because to me, as I hinted at the beginning, Kubrick doesn't really interest me much, but the Kubrickon isn't really about Kubrick.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Because you, you haven't read it. Um so, but Chris could can tell you it's not really about Kubrick; it's about something that's observable. I think I'm try I've tried to demonstrate it uh, by looking more closely at Kubrick and his films, and most specifically the people who are uh, enthralled to them.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So, you- like all, all my recent books, is very much about culture and the, the insidious or the you know the manipulative or the infiltratory. Uh, aspects of culture, how it gets under our skin.
0: Yeah, I see that as more Kubrick as being more the nexus of all of this other stuff that's going on around him and his movies, as you stated in the book, sort of being used to almost gauge how people interact with them. And in many ways, it seems like the viewers have taken the bait and really have just deep dived into them so much that they parse every syllable and every camera shake in them to try and, you know, mine some deeper meaning.
1: Yeah. And so, I mean, last time we spoke, we talked about 16 maps and Hollywood. So I think we probably all pretty much have an idea of at least my view, but I think it's probably your view as well. You plural of hollywood movies in general the manipulative aspects of them um so this is going deeper into a specific example that the thin end it's looking at the thick end of a wedge the thin end of which is is that movies but also other probably everything in culture are designed one way or another to uh, elicit a response from us and to affect our perceptions to it uh, influence our perceptions and therefore influence our behavior because if you influence people's perception you influence how they think about themselves and the world and then you influence how they behave so that that's that's the thin end of which basically anything that affects us whether it's jeremiah johnson or whether it's uh crime and punishment um or, or something you know very lowbrow like big brother or something reality tv it doesn't matter really it's Uh, we engage with it because it changes our mood and it changes the way we experience things. That's the whole point. So what I look at with Kubrick is is, uh, to what degree could that be taken in terms of movies that are designed uh, primarily as a way to map and measure and control and direct that interaction point between the, the viewer, the experience's perception, and the, the artifact itself. Like a kind of symbiosis. Mm-hmm. Right. But uh, he
2: has a specific audience. Yeah. You know, you could look at like Marvel films as being more of a, a wide swath of an audience and perhaps more of a propaganda machine than Kubrick films. So it seems like there, what I like about the idea is that there's more of a infiltrating of society in the Marvel sphere but there's more of a specific messaging in the kubrick
1: world i don't i don't know if it's about specific messaging exactly but it's um i mean yeah the marvel things they're populist and they're they're a very crude kind of propaganda we could say i mean you can just see the way iron man is just so obvious and easy to see Mm -hmm. how uh that could have been designed from day one. I was actually hearing Stan Lee talk about when he created Iron Man. He was like, how can we make this guy sympathetic? Because he's selling arms to the military and this, that, and the other. This was in the 60s. Mm -hmm. It's true. I know. I'll give him a heart condition. So that was interesting. If that's true, like even back when he was invented, might have been some sense. Actually, this is a propaganda vehicle uh, because he's a superhero who works for the military. But anyway, certainly that became explicit with the movie franchise that there wasn't a coincidence why Iron Man became the linchpin of the Marvel Universe, even though he was, he was more minor in the comic world, mm-hmm. the comic books, because he's, he's the most easily adapted to military propaganda. And, that, and that's really you know, what's behind the Marvel stuff. So it's pretty simple. Now, if you look at Kubrick, He's he's very apparently very anti-war, anti-military. He seemed to have this sensibility that is to this day is appreciated and, and heralded as being subversive,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, intelligent, compassionate, uh, questioning, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Like he's he's almost at the opposite end of the spectrum: Mar- uh, the populism of Marvel with the elitism of Kubrick. Kubrick movies right. are elitist. Mm-hmm that's a higher level of influence and it's a higher level of propaganda. Like it really can't look like propaganda at all to work as propaganda. And in fact, I'd say in a way, it isn't propaganda as we normally think of it, because, I mean, there are elements of that. Absolutely, there are actually, because I've deconstructed 2001, for example, as transhumanist propaganda, as I see it. Mm-hmm. Certainly space coloni- colonization propaganda, that's pretty obvious. So it's not either or, actually. But when somebody works at the level Kubrick did or, or Kubrick and company, um, even when it does have propagandist aspects, which to me are very obvious with 2001, they get overlooked because it's a work of art in quotes. Mm-hmm. So, so that's the first thing is that if who's working at a very high level, elitist uh, or other filmmakers consider 2001 now the best film of all time, which is a flashpoint really that, the way that he's regarded yes. he's influencing the influencers. Mm. Uh, that's the first point so and and how the propaganda gets very well hidden when you're working at that high level the second point i was trying to make i was going to get to was that if you're um this is much subtler and harder to describe but if, if the object of the of the propaganda isn't exact isn't to um or isn't primarily to implant ideas into your audience, but actually to extract, I'm going to keep it simple, then that's a different level. Like I'd say, the Kubrick movies aren't so much about indoctrination, although they have that aspect, they're more about extraction. They're designed to extract information from, this is kind of a thesis statement, but obviously it's going to need some unpacking, um, from the collective consciousness. And part of that, or central to that, is this elitist thing where the movies will get raised up and framed as extremely important social artifacts that require study, like the Bible, which is my current interest. Um, obviously, the Bible's influence is uh, incomparable. is nothing else in human history, in the West anyway, that can compare or compete with the influence of the Bible Um Anyway, it's just a counterpoint. But in cinema, we're practically at the point we could say now, historically, whether it's true or not, there's this idea that Kubrick is the most influential and the most important movie maker. And I say, even if that's not true, it becomes true. Obviously, if people believe that, they give that much importance to it, and then it becomes true. And that's how you create a consensus. And the consensus, of course, is a way to manipulate perceptions and beliefs as we've seen in the last few years with with the COVID and all that um, anyway I actually said a lot of different things there but uh, hopefully they can be strung together in some way that <laughs> makes
0: sense. How, how do you think that um, Kubrick became sort of a such a fetish object for movie buffs how did he become the poster boy for that do you think that was that was orchestrated
1: i have a theory theory about that Mm -hmm. actually that's you know i'm finding myself i am doing about kubrick so i just whatever just give in i'm delivering where i said i wouldn't um (laughs) uh but yeah i have a theory about that which is that kubrick he appeals to a particular kind of male intellectual uh and it's it's not that they're male but this is This is more typical, more easily found, more commonly found in men who wants to have, who wants to be a genius, who wants to be thought of as a genius and seen as a genius and hailed as a genius without revealing anything about himself, without being vulnerable in any way, Mm -hmm. which is actually, it's theoretically or or in principle, that's impossible. I mean, I I think the whole idea of genius is a a bad idea personally but if we go back enough in time, we say somebody like how far back do we have to go? Shakespeare, let's leave it, you know, an easy example. It, I don't actually believe it was one guy. I tend to believe there was more than one, but if that was one guy, you kind of have to say, well, you've got to invent a word like genius for somebody who mm-hmm. can do all that stuff. Yeah. Um, what was my point? Uh, yeah. So, but oh yeah that it's impossible like shakespeare the works of shakespeare would not have the value they have if they didn't reveal an awful lot about the person or the people who wrote them because they're getting into the real heart and the soul of the human condition or the book of job as i say which is what i'm currently exploring in a deep way the book of job reveals a lot about the human condition so the person who wrote it they had to drag in there and get it out Kubrick movies don't reveal anything about Kubrick, not really. They reveal his interests, but they don't reveal about his interior life. And I, I and, and that that the, the way that that's been simply summed up by critics of Kubrick, as in those who don't just fall down and worship him and say he's created a whole new language, uh, is they're cold. His movies are cold. Mm-hmm. They're yeah. emotionally kind of empty. Mm.
0: Wes Anderson in that vein seems to be sort of kubrick light, because it's I get the same or I I don't get the same shit from his movies. They're not personal, they're very cold. There's no human interaction. I mean there is, but anyway, sorry I didn't mean to get you off your point.
1: Sure, he came up in the comments actually in the last interview I did, so it's it's not a total non-sequitur. Um but yeah, okay, so without digressing into other examples just to finish this point that that's part that's my theory it's not actually in the book it's not particularly central to the thesis but that makes it a good question actually because i don't have to repeat anything uh it is relevant of course like why do so many guys get obsessed about kubrick that's my theory like if you anyone who worships um you could say anything really but who picks a figure in culture to worship them or create a kind of they don't create a cult but they might participate in a cult even without knowing it they're part of how a cult gets created around a figure they want to be close to greatness that's that's just baked into it they want they they you have to envy if you admire somebody and you're human you have to envy them as well you really most most guys want to be the thing that they admire and that's why they admire it um and, and so what is it that's admirable about Kubrick? Well, that's that's the question that, that you asked in, in a way. And one of the things is, you know, he's super bright. He was super intelligent. The other, obviously, aesthetically, he had a great eye. Um, but one thing that's clear it wasn't because he was such an emotionally feeling kind of guy or that he put so much um, personal or that he was working out his personal demons, like other filmmakers we could name. Uh, even Hitchcock, who I juxtaposed Kubrick with in certain ways to show the differences. Even Hitchcock, who was an entertainer, unlike Kubrick, who was an elitist, you know, trying to be much more than an entertainer. Hitchcock put an awful lot into his movies. You can really get a sense of his obsessions. Kubrick, what's his obsession? Like technology? Mm -hmm. Uh, human intelligence uh, it's it's very kind of weird and abstract and so and so that's central to my thesis i think kubrick was his interest was in what constitutes intelligence and can technology simulate intelligence that's my thesis essentially and of course artificial intelligence one thing we can be sure of is it's going to be very cold it's not going to have human feelings yeah so and that's true of kubrick's movies they don't have much human feeling.
2: They could I'm, be both. They could Sorry. both be considered Freudian filmmakers.
1: Hitchcock and Kubrick.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Maybe, I don't know. Do you want to say more? Or?
2: Well, I, I think that they both are uh, examining um, issues with women and exploring issues, uh, maternal issues I feel like the women in both of their films are very interesting characters. You know, I think Hitchcock, for all intents and purposes, perhaps had a a, a much more misogynistic approach when it came to women, where um, I I would posit that uh, Kubrick... It seemed to have more of a curiosity about women and and maybe the layers of female relationships with men and and kind of the power that women have uh, in the male female dynamic.
1: Right. Well, certainly Kubrick, certainly Eyes Wide Shut is the obvious example. Has been he's been analysed in this way as the thing, the commentary and the subtext of his films and so on. Um, but that doesn't actually interest me very much um, because I don't think that's what most people, most people who study Kubrick movies in this intense way, I don't think they're particularly interested in that stuff there are a few academics and they're necessary to to maintain this idea that Kubrick was a great filmmaker who was working out all these profound questions um, but uh my sense is is that Kubrick actually wasn't that interested in those subjects. Mm. That's that's my feeling. Whereas Hitchcock I thought it was kind of life and death. I'm like, he couldn't even sexually perform. Mm. He was so obsessed with the unobtainable woman and mm-hmm. his mother, psycho and, and so on. Like that, that that's that's the what interests me there is the diff is that, that difference. Or right now anyway, what what I was exploring is that difference. Um Sure, I mean if you if you look at any man, probably a Western man who's making movies, let's say, or is successful in the world, you probably will find similar Freudian issues. I would wouldn't argue against that, but I don't know how much that reveals because they're probably fairly universal, those kind of issues. At I least, just yeah, yeah,
2: I just think of that moment uh, this was in the the room 237 film that we just watched as kind of a primer for this interview. Uh, We were, I was watching part of it and, and one of the scenes that kept getting brought up was the the actual room 237 and what that represented in the film. And when uh, Jack Nicholson goes into that room and he sees the woman in the bathtub and and what that whole scene kind of pulling the layers back of that scene of what that represented so i think that was the thing that kind of brought this freudian element of the unattainable woman or the woman being corroded or somehow luring him in and then being uh uh, on some level representing like this demonic force or this death energy
1: in the woman well i mean that I do somewhat get into not that scene but The Shining I do get into a slightly Freudian interpretation of The Shining and that's probably the because it's the only Kubrick film to me that does reveal something about him like you could say in Eyes Wide Shut obviously there were lots of ideas and themes and stuff around man, woman, this, that and the other but you you can't separate the medium from the message like Eyes Wide Shut to me, that there's nothing recognizably human in that in that movie, really. Mm. The characters is just so strangely stilted. Mm-hmm. Um, so then that's to me, that's proof he's doing something else and he's managed to keep himself out of it, really. Whereas The Shining, I think he couldn't. I think he couldn't keep himself out of that movie. That's just the only Kubrick movie of late years that I actually like and find that has some richness. And so I do interpret that movie in the Kubricon. Um it's almost like i don't know what chris thinks but it's almost like a departure from the main thesis because i i ex, I, ex, I examine the, the shining yeah for its psychological content and what i see it as a kind of blueprint and i even tie together all the dream 237 interpretations and show how they're all related to betrayal by the father or a father who doesn't give a son the blessing so mm. there are and it's in different ways like there are five different interpretations in room 237 and they all seem incompatible but they all symbolically relate to this to a son who is betrayed abandoned uh, by the father in some way and the consequence of that is that the mother uh, the son become is imprisoned by the mother is trapped inside the mother's psyche so i see that the overlook as the mother's. Psyche is representing the mother's psyche, and of course, the whole movie is about a father who betrays his son or I mean, tries to kill his son more mm-hmm. than a betrayal. Um, and so yeah, anyway, that's actually that is entirely consistent with the Kubrickon thesis, this whole idea of the matrix, which has to do with the male psyche that is is trapped inside the, the female psyche because it never managed to separate in childhood. And that's my. I mean, it's Big Mother. That's my next book. That's mm. kind of my. That's kind of the unified theory. I think of all of all of my work mapping hell. You know what went wrong? To me, that's what went wrong. The the male of the species somehow never made it out fully out of the mother's influence. Um, but I mean, that's a very big subject. I'm just kind of throwing it in there because because you kind of led us there i think and um it's as i say, it is in the in the book the kubrick and it certainly is consistent i mean it it only gets fully developed in big mother but it's consistent with the drive to create artificial intelligence if you connect artificial intelligence to this larger thing that we're living in now of creating a matrix as in a whole social Mm -hmm. structure talk about the nanny state, the technocratic nanny state, an entire uh, panopticon of artificial intelligence controlled and directed uh, technocratic society, that is Big Mother. That's the recreation of the the mother's body as an artificial construct in which um, no one ever gets to grow up.
2: Fascinating.
0: And I'm, for some reason, I'm randomly thinking of the... I don't know if you ever saw Ready Player One or you know about the part of Ready Player One where they go into the movie. They actually go into The Shining. And uh, I, I, I should have rewatched that before this interview. But yeah, there's a part of the movie... I, I don't know if you read the book or you saw the movie, but they actually go into the, the bathroom scene and interact with that. And it's crazy. I don't remember all the details about it, but that's... Sure, sort of shows um, some AI leanings into that because it was included in this totally fabricated universe that, that Ready Player One takes place in. But yeah, it also shows its... That. What?
1: I didn't know that. That's, that's a good point. I would have included that in the book had I known it. Yeah, yeah. It oh. might,
0: it's worth checking out just at least that scene Um but what was were there any of those narratives or any of those takes on The Shining from Room Two Thirty Seven that you leaned into a little more that that resonated with you more than the others, or did any of them?
1: Uh, well, they all resonated the way that they were presented. I very much enjoyed that, and that movie did help me to re- revisit The Shining, uh, mm-hmm. give me a new interest in revisiting it, and there's definitely something and, and that was a, a big clue like Kubrick was creating movies trying to create movies that would be Rorschach tests that would reflect the viewer's psyche back at him and mm. um, which you could say that sounds perfectly benign and that's creative and all the rest of it but I add these other elements and say that no it was done more intentionally and more in a more manipulative way than simply giving the viewer an experience, but it's kind of harvesting. Because if you think what the viewer puts into a movie, let's like mm-hmm. say this interpretation, where does that go? Well, it went literally into room 237. So that's a kind of good literalization of this that the viewer himself or herself is creating these stories via their interpretation that Kubrick didn't put in there, but he created the movie in such a way it would draw them out of the viewer that's what I took about as attention harvesting, uh, getting information from the viewer that, that will feed AI. Anyway, this was, that was a digression because I was answering your question specifically. Um, I mean, I suppose the, the most, I don't know, fruitful answer would be that it's, it is all of them together. Like I might have a personal preference I think for John Fowl Ryans, because he didn't really do much interpreting. He just did this weird thing of playing them backwards and forwards at the same time mm-hmm. and came up with all this stuff. And he wasn't particularly analysing. Um, so I kind of enjoyed the flavour of that most. Uh, obviously, the moon landing is the most titillating. Mm-hmm. Um, and probably that's the one with the most legs. I mean, that, that's a real meme if you're right, not a meme as in an image, but it's, mm-hmm. it's, it went viral. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't exactly find it credible. I find, I, but I find it credible that uh, it was intended like of all the interpretations in room 237. I could see that that one was intentionally put into mm-hmm. the shining that people would interpret it, not because it's true, because I don't think it is true or not wholly true anyway, maybe 50% or something, um, but because it would be generating obsession. Um, yeah.
0: So what What 50% do you think is true? I'm just <laughs> curious. I, 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 I'm very fascinated by that whole narrative myself. Uh, I
1: think that the f- moon landing footage is, is fake. Mm-hmm. It's true. As I've said on Twitter, it couldn't possibly have been Kubrick because it's too obviously fake. surely he would have done a much better job and he would have been appalled good point to have ever been blamed for that footage or to have been given the credit um but that's me you know i don't want to insult anyone who does believe it's real because that might sound like what i'm doing but but i certainly can't look at it without thinking how did anyone ever believe that now whereas if i look at 2001 i think well it's better than the effects today
0: true yeah. Maybe he was just doing it half-hearted. Maybe his heart wasn't into the moon landing. so he or, just kind
1: of... or it was meant to be, um, you could say, a cognitive dissonance creator, which is what I'd say about the Kubrickon, actually, so it'd be consistent in a, a different way. But you were meant to know at some level it was fake. But because, as we've seen in the last few years, Fauci and all that, Uh, You can have all the evidence of the senses that shows you something's fake. If there's a voice with enough authority telling you it's real, people will go with the voice saying it's real. And that creates a split or it deepens a split that's already there. So it could be consistent with that. I should make it look fake, Stanley. And he's like, no, I'm sorry, Stanley. You've just got to do it really badly. Well, then why hire me?
0: (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, he had other, as you stated in the book, he had other ties to those sorts of uh, circles, too. And then later on, or maybe even at that time, AI itself, uh, which... Do you What do you know about the Steven Spielberg, uh, Stanley Kubrick AI situation? I don't know much about that movie, but I know Steven Spielberg kind of obviously was the one who actually made a movie out of it.
1: it over, yeah. I, don't, I don't actually know, and I don't get into it in the book, mm-hmm. even though it's an obvious, uh, it's not a smoking gun, but it's an obvious, uh, supports my thesis and, and totally confirms that Kubrick was very interested in AI, if that ever needed confirming. Um, Why he did it, you know, Kubrick and Spielberg working together, to me that's a relevant data point too that gets overlooked Um, in terms of if Kubrick was really, I mean, I suppose Spielberg did do Schindler's list. It's not like Spielberg's a total... What can, uh, I can't think of a word for it, but you know, he's not totally disreputable. He has a reputation, but still, to me, they seem odd bedfellows. Is so, all the only point I am trying to yeah, make. Though. very much so. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was Stanley Kubrick must have known if he let Steven Spielberg take over his AI thing, it would be a stinker. Not that he wouldn't have made a stinker look at eyes wide shut but at least it was a kubrick kind of stinker which says they write about they're very intentionally bad in these very strange ways he's trying to create anomalous experiences uh, whereas spielberg just just does stuff badly often mm-hmm. which is what happened with ai um anyway uh yeah i don't i don't i didn't follow looking into the ai and the backstory as it happened
2: did you? I well, I just wanted to circle back to the shining and the overlook being a, a perhaps a representative of the mother or the woman. Perhaps it you we could take it out one more level and say instead of the overlook, it's the earth that represents the mother or the woman. And the dichotomy is that Kubrick is choosing artificial intelligence or his desire for that kind of futuristic perspective over the earth. And he sees the earth as being the eviscerator or the, the, um, the controller. And so maybe breaking away from that is his, or his desire to break away from that maternal thing. The earth is this obsession with artificial intelligence and the future.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I wouldn't, disagree with that i just don't go that deep into kubrick's own psychology clearly the overlook doesn't represent woman or woman's psyche or woman's body in any healthy way it's a demonic matrix Um, but that's very much the point like a child a male child who is is trapped in the mother's psyche it's because the mother herself is trapped she's not functioning and Mm. she's she's clinging to the child for some kind of salvation or some kind of emotional support um so but sure that would extend you know that kind of um pathological or dysfunctional or unhealthy attachment to the mother would would extend to a rejection of the body and of the earth and uh, it, it, extend, it goes very deep mm-hmm. uh, that's the subject of prisoner infinity actually and it brings us back to the moon as well, because the moon is an image of the mother as well, symbolically, mm-hmm. although a dead one. I don't think, you know, the is dead. So, again, it's not a very positive image. But, uh, yeah, the, the bid to get to the moon or conquer space, starting with the moon, is also a bid to get away from the earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's a weird symmetry in that, because at one level it's like the male psyche is trying to bond with the mother, By getting to the moon uh, but it's just an image Mm -hmm. uh, because actually what he's doing is he's trying to get away from physicality he's trying to get away from his body by entering into this dream realm uh, which brings us back to the matrix again and movies in general you know what what are movies and why why does somebody make movies and why do we want to watch movies uh I, i mean i think that kubrick to some degree, why I was interested, I think, in writing about this subject, is, is that by aspiring to account, to be the ultimate filmmaker, he maybe got closer to showing the, uh, the pathology behind movie-watching, movie-making, and the technology as well. Because like, movies, they are a technology, mm-hmm. like writing or song or much of the older arts. They weren't dependent on technology. I mean, you could say a a flute is technology, if you want it. So it it began. You could even say a a pen is technology, but you don't, strictly speaking, need a pen to write a poem. You certainly don't need anything to sing a song. Movies, on the other hand, uh, were probably the first art form that was just completely and utterly dependent on technology. Yeah. See, I would think.
0: You need lots of lots of props and technology to make a movie, for sure. Um, yeah,
1: yeah, and the faking as well. Like it, much more than yeah. any other art form previously, it's to do with faking reality.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, what role? And perhaps you you may have answered this question in so many ways before. But what role do you think that Kubrick, or maybe the better question would be Kubrick's movies played in the superculture?
1: Well, can you because. Like I'm not sure what you mean by the superculture. I mean, I know you got it from from me, but I'm not sure if I remember what I mean. So yeah. <laughs> how do you the, mean the
0: me? superculture meaning the larger context that what we know or what the average person knows as culture that nestles inside of a larger culture that actually engineers and orchestrates what we call culture from sort of behind the scenes in the sense of um, yeah, do you understand what I'm getting so at. You mean, um, so, so you mean, so you mean,
1: like politically, or in terms of actual organized crime and intelligence operations? do You mean it in that sense? That, yeah,
0: things like, like that. What is behind Hollywood, and you know, these the, a layer beyond what we're used to looking at, or what the average person is used to looking into.
1: I think, I mean, I haven't really answered this particular question before. People often ask about, you know, what was Kubrick involved in? You know, what were his ties and connections? And I get get very bored very quickly trying to answer those questions because it's always facts and figures and numbers and dates, but uh, names. But this, what you're asking, is a little more general. And it's occurring to me that, although they're not mutually exclusive, it seems as though Kubrick and his movies were, uh, again, what I said earlier, I'm getting a horse for some reason, a higher level of social engineering than average um, because it seems as though he was embedded, I mean, he was in bed with NASA, for example, for 2001, um, and that's, I mean, we can't, we can't really comment we don't know in terms of the hierarchical structures who's high you know cia or nasa or the mafia who knows right they're Mm -hmm. all entangled but certainly nasa's closer to the legitimate institution that we think of as benign we think of it as a hub of science and discovery and so on um in fact i think nasa is really embedded in organized crime and Child trafficking and these things, but don't quote me because I got very little evidence for that. Uh, some of it's firsthand, though, so I tend to believe it more, more because it's direct experience of just being too close to those kinds of uh, institutions and locations where weird bad stuff is happening. But anyway, that's very much a digression. But um, so to me, it is all one superculture, and you know, any powerful institution such as NASA is going to be involved in organized crime probably the worst kinds of organized crime. But just talking, you know, imagining that they are a bit separate, or, you know, we tend to perceive them as separate, it seemed that Kubrick was working very much with, if not for, that aspect of superculture that is the superculture which is um, less obviously uh, shady and, and more I guess therefore because it's more respectable like CIA well they've become kind of respectable again in the last few years because we really have been uh, I don't know what the word is but things have got weird recently but I was going to say the CIA intelligence organizations they didn't really have a very good reputation uh, over the last few decades um, and so the idea that organized crime and stuff is involved in that uh, isn't that it shouldn't be that much of a stretch. But the world that Kubrick was moving in, although post Jeffrey Epstein, it shouldn't be a stretch either, is very much sort of MIT science, NASA. That's what it seems like to me. That's my impression. And uh, so he was, I think he was, of all the filmmakers I can think of, bar none, he seems to be the closest to rubbing elbows with a kind of visible elite. Like Minsky for example Marvin Minsky he was hanging out with this guy for 2001 Arthur C Clarke okay he's a novelist but still he, he's kind of you can see his elite connections they're quite visible um, and even the way that Kubrick is viewed he is the film director's film director like yes he's, he kind of embodies the whole idea of elitism mm-hmm. even though he's often presented as this family guy and this very ordinary guy yeah he lived in the mansion but what what would you do if you had money you know so there's apologies for him um but he still exuded a kind of elitism uh so yeah i mean that's that that's my sense is that he was he's more of i think he's more obviously useful to the superculture and because his his influence and his operations were more closely aligned with the visible edifices of power like NASA and science and whatnot, as opposed to a filmmaker who's, who's just embedding certain messages in there and uh, you know creating some sort of insidious propaganda. I think I, my impression is that Kubrick was a very much a key player in a long-term game plan involving the creation of this big mother thing, so artificial intelligence, algorithm-run society, uh, that no, you know, without doubt, is uh, you know a, a major tool, if not the major tool, for social control in the twenty-first century. You know? Computer technology, cybernetics. And uh, Kubrick's the only filmmaker I know who is visibly involved in that aspect.
0: It's interesting. Hunter and I were recently how how this is kind of a a recent example of how Kubrick is still in the pop cultural lexicon. Hunter and I were recently watching this cartoon on Netflix called Inside Job, which is basically. Uh, very conspiracy like every conspiracy that you can possibly think of is somehow drawn, like looped into the the plot arcs of this cartoon, which is episodic and in one scene they are in a cloning lab and there are lots of different celebrities and um, religious icons, I don't remember who all was in there but there's several of the cloning pods that had Stanley Kubrick in there <laughs> there's like seven Stanley Kubrick's so it's like he's still he's still around he's still in the in the peripherals kind of interesting
1: yeah yeah well he is, he's iconic and um, it's ironic then that in a certain way he is identifiably this kind of elitist social engineering kind of filmmaker while at the same time part of his central to his reputation in 2023 which has been really boosted by the post room 237 crowd as in the youtube kind of exegesis exegesis is that he was of some sort of whistleblower some sort of you know yes he was an insider but no he wasn't really working for them he was working against them mm-hmm. his, his movies will set you free kind of idea yeah. that just seems really ironic to me
0: yeah it is kind of interesting that uh he as you said, was an insider, but he was sort of, if we're to believe all of these different ideas and theories, sort of sending us messages, uh, very blanketed messages through his through his works, uh, that he, one of them being that he participated in filming the moon landing and that he obviously was not pleased by that because he's, if we are to believe these different narratives, has been trying to tell all of us that he did have something to do with that and maybe he was doing it against his will and maybe there was some kind of deal made and maybe that's how he got to the position that he was in. Who knows? Cause he's you know, his movies, I'm I'm more fascinated by the fascination that people have with Kubrick's movies than I am his movies. I don't think that they're that great to, to, to be honest. Um, so it's interesting that he's heralded as such a, a masterpiece filmmaker. And I, I, just don't think his movies are that good. I mean, they're, they're decent. They're well-made, but they're not, you know, it's subjective. I know, but,
1: uh, maybe, I mean, at some point subjective has to become objective. It's just, you don't want to be the guy who's saying, <laughs> I know that point, right. And you know, <laughs> you're probably going to get into trouble. Uh, but yeah, obviously, you know, I agree. And hopefully reading, uh, hearing the Kubrick uh, it doesn't sound like you needed help because you didn't probably have the as a film writer for 20 years for me it was more than just well these movies aren't that great i don't know what everyone sees it was like what's going on with you people why can yeah. not you see <laughs> the eyes wide shut it did bother me it really did bother me and um so i mean this is this is kind of central to why before we started uh officially doing the conversation why i say, please don't ask me about kubrick it's just an ironic position to be in because yeah i don't think his movies are that interesting either but and certainly not that good but something is and yeah somehow people got obsessed with them and he became raised up and there is something there is something to look at there. obviously that's what we're talking about why we're talking But it's still a kind, I still find, I do still feel a bit like Jack Torrance in The Overlook, like I've always been the caretaker. Why am I still talking about Kubrick? Can we just, can we, you know, get to something that's more interesting, right? In itself, as opposed to what Chris just said, like, it's interesting that people are so interested in this and there is a reason that's worth exploring, but still, at the end of the day, the result surely has to be, Let's not talk about Stanley. <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> should we? Should we move on to the Bible? <laughs> well,
1: I would love to, but I think it might disorientate. That's your okay. Uh, too much.
0: I, I'm I'm totally open to that. But is there any other thing that you want to address, or anything that you see on this question I'm just, list?
2: I'm just curious about the influence that being in his films had on people because it seems like some of the people in his films went mad, not necessarily right after they were in his films, but I I just wonder what the tone was like on these sets and how, uh, how, you know, this idea of creating a film is creating this alternate universe or this alternate timeline. I find it fascinating to be an actor and be embedded in these realities and how that would influence your life, you know, in subsequent films that you've made or subsequent sets you were on. Uh, And that was, I guess that was the part of room two, three, seven that I really enjoyed was kind of seeing these behind the scenes moments where you're actually seeing Kubrick interacting with some of the actors or people just kind of milling around on the set do do you feel any connection whatsoever to the indigenous people's story or that aspect? Because I do feel like there is a level of resonance there for me that there's something about the land and being in that land. And again, this battle um, not only against native people, but against the earth to kind of settle these parts of the earth that maybe are vortexes or power spots. Did you feel any connection to that? That.
1: Do you mean in Room 237, that yes. interpretation? Yes. Uh, no, although I mean, it's not that I don't in a general sense, but not while watching two, Room 237, although that one at least did have correspond with uh, a plot device in the film. Mm-hmm. You know, it did say it's built on an Indian burial ground, so which wasn't in the novel. Um, I'm wondering if there's a connection between, because it's like you started with one interest, which was the effect on the actors, and then you moved to the indigenous. Are those two subjects connected? I I
2: feel they are, because I do feel like there's a, not necessarily a curse of uh, the, the people, that the people who have... You know, been on this land and maybe, uh, you know, had some negative influence by drawing attention there. I don't know. I've, I just felt like there was perhaps some overlap with Stanley and his desire to be in this specific place and maybe to add these elements of um, indigenous people and kind of the bastardization of that whole subject matter from the white man's perspective. Uh, so I do feel like there, there is some commingling there. I guess maybe I'm not articulating it properly. Uh, I'm also
1: curious because I like the devil in the details to me to, to really get to grips with something. Uh, who, who do you think went mad? He said that, People involved in Kubrick movies went mad afterwards.
2: Well, clearly Shelley Duvall has had some mental health issues and has seemed to kind of go off of the rails. Um, And obviously not right after making that film, but there could be some residual um, elements there. And I think Jack Nicholson, uh, you know, for all intents and purposes, he has a problematic... Uh, personal history and again you know you may not be able to make a direct link between working with Kubrick and his behavior uh, because he probably had problematic behavior before he made that film but I think people who make uh, have these very intense characters Mm -hmm. I think there is some residual effect from that.
1: Absolutely for sure. Uh, Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman, I mean, they were on Eyes Wide Shut for 400 days, I think. It's the longest film shoot in history. Um, and I, there is a theory about that, which I didn't develop in the Kubrickon, which had to do with, because it coincided, him casting those two coincided with Vivian Kubrick joining, if we're going to be neutral about it, the Church of Scientology. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't say causally, you know, which which, if there was a causal factor a relation, which caused which, i.e. did Scientology get their mitts, their hooks into his daughter because he had, was getting his mitts on Tom Cruise, or was it the other And I think it was more likely the first way. Mm-hmm. Um, but either way, the idea that uh, Kubrick was, there was some sort of struggle between Scientology and Kubrick with his daughter as a hostage mm. on the one side, and Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman as hostages on the other side. Now, that's obviously that would require a lot of filling in the blanks there. You could mm-hmm. write a novel about it, but to me it's very tantalizing, and it points to this larger idea of what, what Kubrick, particular any filmmaker, but what was Kubrick doing besides making a movie when he took captive, in this framework, these these actors, whoever they were for a given film, and basically would not release them for months and months. Like Matthew Modin, he didn't let, he tried to stop Matthew Modin leaving the set of Full Metal, full metal Jacket after nine months or something. Mm. Uh, st- and they was still shooting, but I mean, it was it was just going to be one afternoon in a, in a one-year shoot or whatever, uh, to, to be present at the birth of his son. Right. That was the level of Kubrick's control that he tried to maintain, um, and and that suggests the kind of impact that he was consciously willing to have on his actors in the name of Project Stanley, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, another example, kind of, and it's a different example, but of this general same principle that. Uh, Nicole Kidman for the sex scene, in quotes, I mean, just the flash cut of the fantasy of of her having sex with the naval officer, Mm -hmm. which is what L. Ron Hubbard was, the naval officer, there's a Scientology link there, that there was four days filming and nobody was allowed in, and certainly Tom Cruise wasn't allowed in, while his wife was feigning having sex with a stranger. You can imagine the psychological effect that would have had on the husband, maybe not Tom Cruise, because who knows, but if there was a a genuine love bond there it would be a negative effect and that it was somewhat intentional on the part of kubrick's part because that's what directors do they want to create the right psychological conditions for the performance which in this case was feeling jealous and insecure and threatened Mm -hmm. Uh, right so so there's an overlap there between what a director does to maintain enough control to create the work that he wants to create And the kind of control that's actually sadistic, borderline psychotic, that involves imprisoning people in your fantasy world Mm -hmm. and exercising complete dominion over their their world—you know, inner, outer, certainly, but eventually even inner. Uh, To me, yeah, those are all very interesting or very necessary questions. Like, what, how, how sane or healthy is it to? Um, make a movie under those conditions uh, Obviously, it's the spectrum because it's going to be to some degree some sort of artificial conditions otherwise you wouldn't make a movie but Kubrick took it to the extreme and the other thing that's obvious to mention is the 80 takes or something like Jack Nicholson I think at a certain point was on, on, on his knees like begging Kubrick to tell him what he wanted because he couldn't do it another time I would love and to see Jack- those outtakes Jack- this is jack nicholson right he's he's not gonna bend over for anyone except stanley kubrick maybe
0: thank you for taking the time to chat with us i'm sorry it's taken quite a while to choreograph but better late than absolutely never
1: well, we didn't actually do any dancing, so I'm not sure how much choreography orchestrating.
0: Um,
1: yeah, well, likewise, I've always enjoyed our conversations and I've enjoyed listening back to them also. Um, so, uh, yeah, well, maybe let's not wait two years next time, yeah,
0: yeah, for sure. Is there any place that these days that you want to steer somebody to find more of your work or what you're up to now?
1: That's a good question, I mean. Presumably you'll put a link. So I've got a link link tree with all these different links. But to be honest, I'm not maintaining much online currently. I don't have much to plug except I've got another book, Big Mother, but maybe we'll talk about that another day. Mm -hmm. Um, Landmademan.com is the site. Uh, You can register there and get a newsletter, which is maybe about once a month if I'm lucky or if you're lucky. And uh, that gives updates on what I'm up to in the physical world and uh, whether or not there'll be online events because i was doing fairly regular online events Mm -hmm. Uh, i am i have recently said that i would start a men's group again if there was interest and also a um understanding god children of job group as in let's let's look at this weird book of job let's look at the old testament let's let's try and sort the seas of the the Bible, the good book, and and find what's really of value Mm -hmm. in there, because it's a real mixed bag, as I'm sure you're aware. Um, Anyway, those are two possibilities that may or may not happen in the future. And that's, as I've said during this interview, my main uh, hope with doing interviews, besides having a conversation, is uh, making contact with people I haven't made contact with before which is you know, by email, Jason, with a you at protonmail.com. I always like it if people introduce themselves. Mm-hmm. I do do one-to-ones occasionally, helping people to orientate themselves towards as much as reality as I've managed to do. Obviously, I can't take them any further than I've managed to get. I Fantastic. have
2: this great uh, book of Job that's written by Nick Cave, well, he, and he, I was just it. looking around for it to see. He wrote, he wrote the foreword. Weird journey.
1: coincidence. Because my uh, my sister Freudian slutter. My sister asked me today, "Would I be? What did I think of Nick Cave as a Christian or as a commentator on the Bible?" I said, "Well, I wouldn't want to hear what he had to say. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think he's probably better than most." But then I kind of recalibrated. Thought, oh, yeah, maybe I would. Because, uh, but I had no idea he had uh, written a book.
2: Yeah, it's a thin. It's a thin book that is about the book of Job, and Chris is saying he wrote the foreword.
0: Yeah, what they did was they broke up the books of the Bible and different people wrote forwards to the different books. Yeah. That's my understanding, unless this is something completely different. Oh, I see. Yeah. Well, yeah.
1: The way you said that sentence, it sounded like Chris wrote the forward to Nick Cave. <laughs> hold foreword. on,
2: hold on a second. I it just found out. It.
1: Uh, but now I understand. They got Nick Cave. Oh, that feels a bit marketing cynical. But anyway, they got yeah. Nick Cave exactly. to write a forward. Is and a book of, you know,
0: and he's not. It, yeah, exactly. He's not a Christian. At least the last interview that I heard him, where that came up, he, he he has a lot of Christian characters, and he talks about God in his songs, but he's never professed to be one himself. So
2: this is a set. Oh, geez. Of course, I can't get the. This is a set. Of. Books uh, from of the- Books of the Bible, and this is the Book of Job. Yeah, with an introduction by, but it says
1: Louis Louis de Burnaz.
2: He wrote the introduction, yes. Oh yes. Oh, and Nick
0: Cave did what then?
1: Um.
0: Here's a Revelation. Nick in. Cave signed it. he yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> He revised it.
0: The King, the King Nick version. <laughs> King Inc. Somehow, Probably would be more yeah, important. I
2: can't remember. Somehow he's involved in this. I thought he wrote this
1: section. Maybe he wrote a blurb on the back. Yeah. <laughs> I'm right. Nick Cave and I write songs about the Bible. <laughs> maybe, <Find> maybe, <laughs> maybe you have the wrong book. Maybe he wrote a,
2: I thought it was this one for some reason. Yeah, yeah oh, it's somehow, really...
1: Somehow I'm relieved uh, <laughs> if it's not true. It, it, well, I don't know. Yeah.
2: It's called The Pocket Cannons. The words of the wise. Does
0: it have? Yeah, it has the right. list on the back. Yeah. And oh, here it is. New was-
2: Testament. The Gospel according to Mark yes. is what he wrote. Is Nick Cave?
1: Right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So. I think I am relieved. Crisis I, averted.
2: averted. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, because I've become aware that I'm joining a kind of lineage by by um trying to understand the Book of Job, like finding all these other authors before me, mm-hmm. going up thousands back thousands of years. And uh, I think I would be disturbed if Nick came. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: that's funny. We just recently had Anne Diamond on. Uh, oh, too. great! Yeah, yeah. That I learned about her from you. So thank you for that. Indirect. Was it good? It was Did great. Good- yeah, yeah. Great. fantastic conversation. Yes. Okay. Jason, thank you so much. Have a, a wonderful rest of your evening. I will let you know when this comes out. And um, the, uh, yeah, let's definitely not make it two years until the next time. Let's, when it will actually, when is Big Mother loosely uh, set the Halloween come
1: out? is supposed to be out on Halloween. Oh. So I'll have, I'll have a review PDF in a couple of weeks. Oh,
0: probably. cool. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, let's definitely have you on for that. Yeah.
1: Kubicon was just a warm up, really.
0: Cool. Wonderful. Cool. As soon as you have a copy, a PDF copy, please send it to me.
1: Will do. Cool.
0: Awesome.
2: All right, Jason. It's an honor and a pleasure always yes. to talk to you. We send you many blessings.
1: Thank you, Hunter. Thanks, Chris. Yes. Till next All right. time.
0: Yeah. Alrighty. Much love. Bye. Farewell. Bye. Well, it's good to, good to speak with Jason again.
2: It was. Yeah. He's great. He's looking I, good these days. I always enjoy his... His uh, conversations that we have with him. He's a very, very smart man. And it's nice to talk to smart people. I enjoy it.
0: (laughs) He is. He's got a good, um, a masterful way of articulating complex ideas, which I struggle with very often. So, yes, I appreciate his intellect and uh, his way of grappling with uh, many of the ideas that we've talked about on past podcasts and that he talks about in his books. Um, Fantastic stuff. If none of you out there have checked out any Jason Horsley material, you should look into it. He had a great podcast uh, for several years called The Liminalist. I think you can still get it any place that you get podcasts. And he rounded it out at 300 episodes. So a lot of fantastic conversations embedded in all of that.
2: Two chickens. Well, maybe that's why they're so squawky, as they need more, more friends.
0: Do, are chickens pack animals? Yeah, are they're they-
2: flock animals. Yeah, I guess yeah. most
0: birds are. Are there any loner birds?
2: Um, shrews, maybe. The shrews, f- the flightless bird, the, the little tiny bird from Australia. I think they're
0: loners. <laughs> <laughs> I thought a shrew was like a mole.
2: Oh, yeah. Maybe that's why they don't fly. Yeah, no, no, no. no. There's another one. There's a flightless <laughs> bird that is a solo bird. Oh, okay.
0: Huh. Not a shrew. Maybe maybe you're right and I'm wrong. Who knows? It's possible. I don't know. I don't know either. Anybody out there got <laughs> any answers? <laughs> if we were live streaming, we could, we could ask you to hit the chat room up, but exactly. we are not live streaming. We haven't gotten yeah. the gumption to do that yet, but. Yes, it was a great conversation. I I'm glad that somebody else who is maybe I don't know if he would classify himself as a current film buff or a current film fanatic fanatic maybe too dramatic of a word but at least a former one um, doesn't get the Kubrick hype. Um, yeah, I I like his movies, but you know I like a lot of movies. Uh, I wouldn't put necessarily his high above. Uh, the ones that I genuinely think are works of art.
2: I may like Room 237 more than I like any Kubrick films. Just, just because I like the, the the making fun of Barry Lyndon. <laughs> How <laughs> which, boring it is. Which I thought was a beautiful film, but I'm not a big fan of Ryan O'Neill, and, who I find to be ultra, ultra creepy. Um and so I like the fact that that film made fun of Barry Lyndon.
0: I've never seen Barry Lyndon, so it's I don't know. so
2: boring. Mm-hmm. It's so just meandering, and it's it's like if someone tried to take a painting and make it into a film. So like every shot looks like a painting, which is should sounds great, but it's just not not it's not. uh interesting it's not an interesting movie Mm.
0: okay i'll make sure not to watch it
2: i will make sure that you make sure not to watch it (laughs) and i I will make sure not to watch it with you
0: (laughs) i got very much into very much might be stretching it a bit but i was uh, a clockwork orange fan back in my late teens and 20s um I think there was something about, and Jason has sort of alluded to this previously, and in Kubrickon, um, fascinated by the violence, fascinated by the irreverence. Um, I never took that to nearly to that extent when I was a kid, but I think that I, I somehow was uh, fascinated by the lawlessness of that um, group of people, the droogs in that movie and the juxtaposition of that. And I think that's maybe where I, I first saw that in cinema where you pair disturbing Im- images with music that is, you know, just a strange juxtaposition to what's taking place in, in front of your eyes. So they would have classical music to rape scenes and stuff like that. Um, so I was fascinated by that idea and, uh, I think that I watched it several times during that time period, but I haven't watched it in probably geez, at least 10 or fifteen years. But I would like to see it again just to see what I where I land with it now. I know I'll probably have to do that by myself, but
2: uh, you know, I think that it goes back to what we were talking about about creating like certain filmmakers creating enough room for the viewer to embody or to feel that they embody those roles. And I think there's a fantasy element to some of his films where you may not want to be the, the uh, Jack Nicholson character, for example, in the shining, you may not want to be Alex in um, a clockwork orange, but there's this, uh, desire to explore what that psyche or what that pathology is, and so these films satisfy that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when when people were watching Sex in the City, for example, some women took on certain uh, role of those roles and said, "I'm a this, I'm a that, I you know, I fit into this. This is what my Personality is like is this specific character. So uh, they would have part viewing parties and and actually try to embody that character and really be that person and and imbue themselves in those roles. And I think if you are not someone who is a rapist, for example, (laughs) or a murderer of your children, or you know have this dark part of your personality but you want to observe that and then see where that fits or how you align yourself with that, that that those types of films give you the opportunity to do that.
0: I could agree with that, for sure. I'm trying to think of, I, I watched Full Metal Jacket in my early 20s, I would imagine, which made absolutely zero impression on me. I really don't remember anything from that movie, except maybe somebody hung themselves. uh, One of the soldiers did. That's about it. That's about all I remember from that. Um, Eyes Wide Shut. I am fascinated by that movie. It is a low quality movie for the most part, but there's something strange about it. Um, just in as far as cinema is concerned and that the kind of movie it is and what it's intimating or maybe not intimating, there is a cold clinicalness to it, but I'm fascinated by, sometimes I'm fascinated by works of art just because I'm curious as to what went into them. Uh, what drove somebody to make that? Uh, how did they make it? Um, what, what, was the end product that they were hoping to produce, or what kind of effect, and where does it what kind of effect does it actually have on yes yeah. and and just the phenomena social phenomenon of that too?
2: I think I'm more curious about films like that that are low budget than films sure. that have huge budgets mm-hmm. when I see someone that has you know a hundred million dollars to make a film and they make a shitty film that doesn't really move me. I don't really give a shit what motivated them to make that film or what the, what the messaging is behind that. But someone that has, you know, a thousand dollars to make a film and they've made something really strange and interesting. I can think of a couple of different films like that where, I just went I looked I was afraid. I just looked back at that. No, they had a lot of money to make Bozo afraid. But I look back on the, those films and go, "Wow, you know, this is this is a really creative film and they had no money. Imagine what if this person did have money to make mm-hmm. a film, what kind of film they would make?" Um I I think of, you know, I can think of a a dozen movies like that where Having a lack of funding actually made a better film than having a lot of money because this person didn't second guess themselves. There was a there was a, a deeper creative motivation uh, because they had to be more um, industrious with yeah. the money that they did have for sure.
0: Definitely, I th- I got you. I got mixed up. I thought you were talking about people who had a lot of money, and then they made something strange, like Bo is afraid, would be a perfect example of a what the fuck moment. Um, and that movie that we watched that you I think you checked out from the library about this guy who I, I want to say Wheels is in the title or something like that, where this guy plays lots of different roles. Like his occupation is to serve strange uh, roles in very strange situations, and he goes from one situation to another throughout the length of this movie. And I can't for the life of I'm me... trying to blame. It's not that you don't remember the title, you don't remember the movie?
2: I have no idea okay. what you're talking about. Gotcha. Oh, or title.
0: There's an erect penis in one of the scenes, in one of the roles that he plays, uh, where he is naked and he is... Yeah, it's so it's so otherworldly and strange. It's hard to describe. So I'm sorry I shouldn't even have brought it up if I couldn't have impl- <laughs> implanted something concrete in your mind. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. Um, where to go from there? Huh? I don't know. Anyway, it was great to talk to Jason. Um, I, I'm interested uh, with the direction that he's taken. Um, and he has done that several times in his life where he, there are different chapters where he goes from one um, living situation to another living situation. And uh, for very, I'm assuming, for very specific reasons, just because of who Jason is. Um, and I find that level of adventure and openness and willingness uh, refreshing. Uh, most people don't operate like that in the world. Uh, but he takes chances and gets into, different uh, situations. And uh, this current one seems very, very interesting in Spain uh, with a little chunk of land trying to, and I meant to, to ask him more about how self-sufficient they actually were. Like, does he still have to go to the market every day or every, you know, several times a week, or do they pretty much produce their own? He
2: said he did. He went to the market. He didn't say we didn't get a schedule, but he did mention that.
0: Okay. (laughs) I was trying to think of a funny joke, but it wasn't coming. I'm I'm hungry right now, so I'm a little distracted. And I've got to get on chicken run building here very soon. So.
2: Oh, that's right. Yes. Cool. The chickens will be happy.
0: They will be happy. Yeah. God, it needs to get done. That's yes. why I feel like when I have free time, I've got to utilize it. Yeah. Um, so I we're going to try to keep this under 20 minutes this time. Yep. Uh, thank you very much for listening. Hopefully you enjoyed it. Hopefully it compels you to go out and check out some of Jason's work. Um, again, his podcast is fantastic. I could recommend any, the last five of his books. That's the, all I've read by him. So, but they're all really, really good. So yeah, check them out. Links are in the, in the episode notes.
2: <laughs> I'm just looking. <laughs> it looked like you
0: were smiling at somebody. That I was smiling am. I'm just looking
2: at, at the books. They make looking me happy. <laughs>
0: I like books. You still haven't integrated both of our books, though. All of my books and all of your books. I get the feeling you don't want to do that. It's like a joint bank account, a joint book account. (laughs) (sighs) Like my books are going to affect your books or something. No. affect your books. Okay. With an STB.
2: Oh, God.
0: B, not D. B for book.
2: I know. I got it. On no, I just, I don't know how to do it. It's such a huge project.
0: I have a lot fewer so, books than you do, my I dear. I know, I know, okay. I know. I'd just be throwing a few of my books on your pile, your many piles. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's not going to hurt. You just tell me what the class of, or categories are yeah. and I'll put them. I'll, I can the see. category is we need more shelves. No shit, <laughs> yes. And discernment. Can anybody offer any simple discernment advice? How dare you? <laughs> there's, this, there's a place where discernment and space meet up. It's a very oh, tangible place. I don't know where that is. And we're there. It, we live in it. This room is where that... You're just looking at how you look. No,
2: I'm looking at the doggies <laughs> to see if it makes ha- horns on my head, <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't, <laughs> which is
0: good. Okay. We hope All you right. enjoyed it. Much love to you. If you want to contact us uh, for guest recommendations, oh. casserole recipes, whatever, just to say hello, the melt podcast at protonmail.com or
2: hunter hyphen muse at protonmail.com.
0: And you can get pretty much to anything and all things Melt related by going to meltpodcast.net.
1: <laughs> I almost poked myself in the
0: eye. You're watching uh, the unraveling uh, uh, of Hunter here.
2: Yes, no, exactly. Not unraveling.
0: Slightly. Okay. Unfurling. Thank you for listening and until next time. Fare thee well. Do you like our new Jim Bob uh, uh, pinned logo up there? I like it a lot. I think hey, Jim to. Bob.
2: Thanks, Jim Bob. Goodbye.
0: Meow. Thanks so much for making it this far. If you've liked what you've heard and you are thus inspired to contribute to the well being of the Melt, there are a few easy ways to do that. The most tangible being financially, which can be achieved by clicking the Patreon or Locals link in the episode notes, and then you will be led through the process for starting your monthly subscription for a mere $5 a month. This will give you access to exclusive episodes, full-length episodes, and you can participate in our monthly Melt meetups where we can congregate together as a community and often get a chance to talk with some of our guests more intimately. Another way to help out would be to go to wherever it is that you listen to the Melt and either leave a favorable review or rating. You can also spread the word via sharing and recommendations to friends and family, either in person or virtually. And lastly, if none of those options are readily available or appealing to you, simply send your positive thoughts and intentions. In an interconnected and quantumly entangled multiverse, these also go a long way.